This is the Visible Hand, a podcast about organizations, economics, and management. My name is Jordi Blanes Vidal, and I am an associate professor at the Department of Management, London School of Economics. My guest today is Robert Metcalf, assistant professor at Questrom School of Business at Boston University and visiting associate professor in economics at the University of Southern California. Today, we are going to talk about his paper, The Impact of Management Practices on Employee Productivity, a field experiment with airline captains, with Greer, Gosnell, and John List, which was published in the Journal of Political Economy in 2020. Hello, Robert. Welcome to the program. Hi, Jory. Thanks for having me. Robert, what do you do in this paper? So this paper is trying to understand what's the causal impact of management practices on firm productivity. And there's been a blooming research agenda started by Nick Bloom and John Van Rienen in the Courtly Journal of Economics in 2007, suggesting that management practices are an important predictor for firm productivity and firm performance. And so since that paper, there's been a, a tons of research demonstrating you know, how powerful that, that correlation is. And there's been some experiments that have been done with companies like Nick Bloom and others in the QJE on estimating the impact of management practices on Indian textile plant productivity, and also by Brunatal in the JP last year as well on Mexican small and medium-sized enterprises. But we haven't really had any good causal evidence of how Increase in management practices can improve the productivity of high-skilled labor. And secondly, is we don't really know out of all the suite of management practices that seem to contribute towards productivity, which ones are actually doing the heavy lifting. And so the objective of this paper is to understand, can we change the productivity of high-skilled labor through management practices, and which type of management practices are important to change in high-skilled labor productivity. And the actual setting that you study is an airline, a Virgin Atlantic in particular. Can you tell us what is the measurement of productivity that is important in this particular context? Yeah, for this paper, we we had fuel productivity as being the main outcome f- for this company. So what was fantastic about this collaboration with Virgin Atlantic is they have amazing data about the behaviors that captains do per flight and before the flight and, and after the flight in how they can actually impact on fuel use. And we kind of know sort of the, the cost per flight, you know, how much fuel is used, we know any time durations, any delays. So we kind of know everything about the productivity of the flight. Uh, this is not productivity of Virgin Atlantic per se, this is just of the flights that their highly prized labor actually contribute towards in the company. And specifically, there are three measures of productivity in terms of fuel usage that you focus on. And obviously, you, you're going to study the captains inside the airline. And captains naturally don't have any ability to affect revenue. They are in charge of operations, so they can affect the cost. So fuel usage is one element of the cost. I guess another element would be delays, because if they arrive late, then the connecting flights are going to be missed and so on. And you will tell us something about that later, but you're going to focus on fuel usage And what is this? Is this a total amount of petrol that the plane uses or something else? Yeah, so we identified three behaviors that captains do that ultimately lead to potentially different uses of jet fuel 
in a given flight. And so this was, I was an expert in aviation before this paper. And so this was definitely a collaboration with Virgin Atlantic who had the expertise on these behaviors. And so the three behaviors were, the first was fuel load. So that is the, the proportion of flights for which the correct amount of fuel was calculated for that flight and the fuel load was adjusted as necessary. So what I mean is when a captain gets into the cockpit, he or she is given an updated weight assessment of the plane. It's called a zero fuel weight calculation. And so in that last 30 minutes, they get to decide how much fuel they want to put on. And so we are looking at that margin itself. Like, do they get that calculation correct? That's the first behavior. The second behavior was given the weight of the plane and given how much fuel is on the plane, do they use the efficient or the optimized amount of fuel from takeoff to landing? So that actually is a, an aggregate of many different behaviors. So that's like optimized speed, optimized altitude, optimized continuous ascent and continuous descent. So we didn't really measure those things separately. We put them all together into one behavior, what we called efficient flight. And then finally, we had efficient taxi in. So as a plane touches down, hits the runway, after the engines have cooled down for one or two minutes, a captain can turn off at least one of the engines if they're in a, a four-engine plane or if they're in a two-engine plane, just turn off one of their engines as they're being taxied in. And so these are the three behaviors that we identified with Virgin Atlantic as being potentially large contributors to the residual fuel use that the captains could actually change. When we got into the data, we realized actually those behaviors were not being done well the majority of the time. So I think for fuel load, the first behavior, in the 12 months before the experiment start, that was being done well 42% of the time. For efficient flight, that was being done less well. That was 31% of flights that was being optimized. And then for efficient taxi in, that was being done 35% of the time. And so Virgin Atlantic were like, well, these things, you know, should be, we should be more towards 90% rather than say 30 or 40%. So that's why, so we focused on those two behaviors because A, they are potentially going to be large contributors to the potential like fuel productivity of a flight. But these were these are so three behaviors that the airline believed that were currently not being optimized. And they've probably not been optimized for a few different reasons. But essentially, the I would say one of the main ones is these captains were not incentivized to actually you know, be efficient on the fuel margin. Their contracts didn't say you've got to be fuel efficient. That's not what they are contracted about. So that's probably one of the main reasons why is a lack of motivation to be fuel efficient on a plane. Okay. So we have this airline, we have these captains in charge of the flights, and the objective here is to reduce costs, uh, obviously also CO2 emissions and everything, but as a first initial approximation to reduce fuel usage, you are going to implement an experiment that introduces a set of management practices in a randomized way that we encourage a change in these behaviors. But before we get into what the experiment does, I would like to ask you why focusing on the intermediate behaviors rather than on the ultimate goal, which is the actual amount of fuel that the flight uses? Like these three things, you know, in terms of calculating this properly, running the flight efficiently turning off the engine in the taxi. All these things contribute towards the same goal. Why do you want to measure them separately rather than having the final measure of productivity, which presumably you also have in your data? You have a single dependent variable rather than three separate dependent variables. Yes, so we wanted to make this as 
transparent and easy as possible and bite-sized as possible for the airline captain. So if we just thought about the end fuel use, it's it might be tough to be able to establish what's the value add of changing some of these behaviors without actually trying to identify how these behaviors affect end fuel use. And so if there's a captain that's flying from, say, Heathrow to Barbados, that's probably a, a lot of fuel. If you're flying from, say, Heathrow into some part of Europe, obviously a lot less fuel. And so how do you get the right value add of what a captain can do on his or her behaviors between a flight going to Barbados versus a flight going to Paris or, or whatever? So the interesting thing in, in the airline industry is captains have stable routes. And so like the higher up you get, although the more experienced you are within the company, you get to choose the routes that you fly. And so we don't really have a young captain flying to Barbados one day and then flying to Paris another day. They kind of stick with the same route. And so we wanted behaviors that were common across all of the flights that were transparent. And these are behaviors that the captain know about so that they couldn't argue with us saying, oh, you're comparing apples and oranges. How can you compare my flight to the Caribbean versus someone else's flight to Paris? And so that's the reason why we sort of focused on like these smaller bite-sized but easily targeted sort of behaviors that we compare a long-haul flight versus like a medium or short-haul flight. Typically, the way that you will do this is econometrically, you will control for the flight, but you are saying we cannot do that because the flight and the captain are essentially collinear because we have very little rotation of captains across flights or routes. And then there will be some type of like a trade-off between control on one hand and flexibility on the other. You focus on three behaviors, but it is possible that the margin of adjustment is a different one. And if only you have allowed them to choose, then you will have managed to get them to reduce fuel usage much more. So that's a drawback of what you're doing. The advantage is that, as you said, it is very transparent. It's, it's very obvious what you are or the company, the airline is expecting them to do. And then let's see whether they do it or not. So you said, in fact, it's in the title, the impact of management practices. What are these management practices that you introduce in the airline? And tell us a little bit more about the experiment. Yes. So when you do experiments inside companies, and especially doing experiments with employees, if they are not in separate units or silos, it's very difficult to run an experiment where employees in the control group don't know they're part of an experiment. So we have to be really transparent to all of the captains and said, hey, we're going to start measuring you on these three behaviors very frequently. So all captains were aware that suddenly, you know, 2014, they're going to be monitored on the three behaviors. But what we were able to do is to be able to then randomize into whether you just receive this you know, constant monitoring and we won't give you any other information or any other treatments. Or you're being randomized into one of three, I would say, further management practice treatments. So the first one was just information feedback. So the information feedback was every month, we would send uh, a letter to your home address telling the captain how well he or she did as a percentage point for the flights in that month. And that was it. And we said, that these, are, these are the three behaviors that we are measuring. And this is how well you've done on the three behaviors. We told them whether that was good or bad from like from an information point of view. That's that's it. 
The third group, or the, sort of the, the next management practice, was information and now a target. So in the Bloom and Van Rien management practices suite, sort of target setting seems to be an important labor productivity management practice. So what we did is for each captain, so that we could have like this apples for apples comparison. For each captain, we looked at their 12 month prior performance on their flights and said, hey, the airline wants you to hit 25 percentage points above your baseline on each of those three behaviors. And then each month we said, what was your performance? Did you hit or miss that target? And if they hit two out of the three targets, we said, you know, well done, congratulations. You've been a fuel efficient captain this month. If not, we said, you know, try to, to do better next month to be more fuel efficient. And then lastly is we had a, a treatment group that leveraged incentives. So the last treatment group had the information, the targets, and then we said, hey, if you hit your target, we will donate 10 pounds sterling to a charity of your choice for each target that you hit. And so we wanted to use financial incentives, but the context didn't allow that. So we have to use pro-social incentives. But that's not necessarily a bad thing because we do see a lot of surveys with CEOs suggesting that pro-social considerations are increasingly being used to acquire and keep high-skilled labor. So we were like, well, no, let's, let's just try to test whether pro-social incentives can change productivity as well. So the captains had the ability to, to direct those incentives to any charity that they want. We use the default charity of the, the, the airline and they could opt out and direct that money wherever they want to another charity. So those were the, the four different groups. And we kept that going for eight months in, in 2014. And every month we would, as a research team, we would deliver those, those letters to the home address of those captains. And so that, that sort of information target and incentives really does line up well with the management practices literature in terms of how to think about improving the productivity of labor within and across organizations. An important thing here is that you are stacking these interventions. This is like a, a critical contribution, if you want, of the paper in that they are not bundled. So therefore, you are able to tell us how much this intervention contributes once we have the others and so on. You cannot study them separately because, of course, you cannot study target without information, right? Because if I have a target, but I don't know whether I will meet it or not, then it's nonsensical in, in that sense. Or you cannot have information without monitoring because if you can give me the information, it has to follow that you're monitoring. But you can study the marginal effect of each intervention on top of the other. And then you randomly allo allocate these captains to these four different groups. And then, as you said, the monitoring group is, in some sense, also the control group. There is no proper control group in terms of a set of pilots who remains at the initial baseline. So that means that in studying the effect of monitoring, you have to be a little bit more careful. Can you tell us what is it that you find there and whether you need to control for something to study the effect of monitoring on these three performance measures? Yeah, so we designed the experiment in a way that none of the captains could opt out. So everyone was involved in the experiment. And so that the monitoring group, as you mentioned, you can't unmonitor them. Once you tell people that you're going to monitor these behaviors in the workplace, they know they're going to be monitored. And so when we did this analysis, we, we are doing like an event study analysis of saying, okay, let's con control for all of the observable characteristics that we have that we think are predictive of those three behaviors. And 
control for that and say, okay, once that, once that sort of information of your being monitored hits, does that change sort of the short-term effects on those three behaviors? And that's essentially what we found. It was quite a large effect. We're talking for the fuel load, uh, which is the first behavior, we had a 3.3 percentage points increase over a baseline of 42%. For efficient flight, we had a, a 13 percentage point increase over a baseline of 31%. And then for efficient taxi, we had a 3.8 percentage points increase over a, a 35% baseline. So what's quite nice about this case is we kind of know a lot about each flight anyway. So there isn't, we knew there was no other factors going on outside of our, you know, of our research that changed between just before the experiment started and just after. You might think there are like outside our research partnership things going on that might affect productivity, but the flights are so standard. The amount of fuel that you should ought to use is so standard. The behaviors are so standard before versus after. We just don't think there's any other factors that could reasonably be that powerful in changing behavior. So we attribute that change to, to the monitoring. I would argue that it is the fact that you are measuring behaviors that are very standard, settings that are very standard in which you have good controls that is making the persuasive argument for you. This is not a case uh, such as events in finance in which something happens and the share price goes up or down dramatically within minutes and in which you can make the argument that it is very implausible that something else could have uh, been going on at that point in time. You know, here... You have a figure that is a bit of noise before. You're comparing months after with months before. But you have good controls. And this, the behaviors are so standard that it is difficult to think what else could have been going on at that point in time. The other thing that I was wondering in thinking about this monitoring treatment is that in some sense, this uh, treatment is itself a bundle treatment. That is, you are sending a letter to the pilots two weeks before the experiment starts, or Virgin Atlantic is sending a letter. And Virgin Atlantic is doing two things in sending that letter. The one that you focus on is tell the pilots, we're going to monitor these three performance measures. But the second implicit thing in there is to communicate to the pilots that these three performance measures are important to us. And that by itself, could have had an effect in their behavior. There is a recent working paper by Guido Friebel, Matthias Heinz, and Nikolai Zubanov, where the intervention is simply communicating to middle managers of stores that excessive turnover of employees is a problem. That's it. And asking them, could you do something to reduce it? And they find that this seemingly very minor intervention has an impact in their setting. So monitoring is also a communication of values or priorities as well in there. So, but you have told us it has a big effect. What is the effect of uh, the other treatments? Yeah. So well, if we compare the information, the targets group, it seems like the targets seem to do, seem to change productivity a lot more than the information. So information itself does have an impact on efficient taxi, but we don't have enough power for fuel load and an efficient flight. But for, for targets, we seem like we do have starting to have meaningful changes in, in the behavior of the captains in that group. So for efficient flight, they have a you know a 3.7 percentage point increase, again over a baseline of, of 31%. And for efficient taxi, they have a, an increase in efficient taxi by nearly 10 percentage points over a baseline of 35%. So 
quite large effect for the targets. For the pro-social group, we see slightly larger effects for the efficient flight. So we have a 4.7 percentage points increase. And then for efficient taxi, we have an 8.8 percentage points increase. So it seems like just looking at the raw numbers, as we start to layer on more and more of those management practices, it seems to kind of increase incrementally, but we don't really have enough power to be able to say that these three treatments have an independent and significant effect over each other for all of these behaviors. It seems like the coefficients are increasing, but we can't unanimously say for every behavior that's the case. So monitoring has an effect. Information has very little additional impact uh, on top of monitoring. Targeting, if I understood it well, has more of an impact. And then pro-social incentives have very little effect on top of the targeting, which was on top of information, which was on top of monitoring. Yeah, you got it. Broadly speaking, this is the summary, right? Absolutely. So in terms of thinking, why could it have been that information does not have so much of an effect? Because so we know from other studies that communicating to workers information on their absolute or relative performance in other settings at least has an effect. I'm wondering, would it be hard once captains have been informed that these performance measures are important for the captains to find that information on their own? So in this setting, they would have to do that through memory. They have to go back and think, okay, did I actually do the right calculation for the fuel load? Did I actually optimize my fuel use in takeoff and landing? And did I turn off an engine in the past? They didn't really have that data to hand that they could look at historically. They'd have to remember that. Um, so they have to use their memories. So I think for the information treatment, we're just giving them information on, on these three behaviors that you know they, they might have faulty memories over, they might be correct memories over, but we didn't tell them whether it was good or bad what they were doing. We just told them, this is exactly your performance on the three behaviors. We didn't say, hey, you gotta, you got to hit 50% of the, of the behaviors half the time. There was no clear benchmark on what's good and what's bad for the information. And I think that's why it didn't particularly work too well. We needed that group in there to be able to know how then targets and pro-social incentives work. So even though it's not an emphatic success, it was really important from a theoretical point of view that we had that treatment group in there. And in terms of the pro-social incentives, which don't have an additional effect, implicitly, if I understand what you meant to say earlier, it seems something along the lines of there is a certain element of concavity here. So as we keep increasing the load on interventions, the last one has very little marginal effect or, or something like that you were trying to say. But another way to think about this is that these pro-social incentives are maybe not so highly powered. You were saying we have evidence from other literatures that CEOs want to attract highly skilled professionals and all this. But I am wondering, so these are professionals who earn around $200,000 a year. If they wanted to give $30 to save the children, it's not a huge sacrifice for them, <laughs> right? Like it would be easier for them to just take it out of their pocket than start worrying about fuel efficiency and so on. In fact, I think you write in the paper that a large proportion of these captains did not even bother to select among the five charities that you proposed to them. So were you really expecting a huge change in behavior on the basis of these incentives? 
So you, you mentioned in the paper that these are individuals that possess strong professional identities and a sense of social obligation and organizational mission. But this mission is presumably to keep their passengers safe or to make the world more connected, not necessarily to contribute to, to these charities. Were you surprised that there was no effect there? So I think we designed it in a way that we wanted the, the, the main default charity to be the existing charity with the airline. So, that, so the airlines normally have one charity that they focus on on a given year. And so we focused on that as the default and they could opt out if they want to. So we don't know whether the lack of opting mm. out was because they liked that charity or because they didn't sure. really care for the pro-social incentive. So that was kind of the first issue. The second thing is I, I kind of agree with you that maybe these didn't have enough bite. They weren't large enough to really, you know, motivate these captains to change their behavior, especially when you think about the size of that incentive in comparison to their, their monthly paycheck. I think what is quite interesting from sort of the research and the field experiments being done on, on pro-social incentives and effort, it seems like the size of the pro-social incentive doesn't really change the effort. It's just the presence of a pro-social incentive gets people to change their effort and then they're not they're quite inelastic beyond that sort of price of pro-social incentive. So that's why we were like, well, let's not give like a thousand dollars per right. month. Let's just give them the sort of ten dollars per target per month and see. You know, we didn't, we couldn't test that because we didn't have enough captains to experiment over for, for power. And so we thought maybe it would work that you know the pro-social itself would change effort but the size of it may not. That's something that we could test down the line, but we didn't have enough power to test that in there. So we're not totally surprised it didn't have an impact. We found on other measures like job satisfaction, it did have an impact, but on the actual productivity itself, it doesn't seem to be a large effect. So you also have the ability to investigate long-run effects. Now, the difference between short-run effects and long-run effects is very subjective and varies from paper to paper. Very often people refer to long-run effects to whatever was happening when my data set ended. <laughs> that's, that's what the long run is. <laughs> so if my data set lasts for a month, then one day is short run, a month is long run. If my data set lasts for three centuries, then the first two centuries are short run, the last one is long run. But here you, you have a, a valid, genuine long-run effect, which is an additional year or close to a year after the experiment actually ended. What do you find there in terms of how these effects uh, survive or, or attenuate over time? Yeah, so it's interesting that the monitoring effect seems to carry on even after the experiment ended after the eight months. And so what we think is, is happening is that it's really hard to unmonitor employees. <laughs> once, once they know that their principals or their managers are, are monitoring a certain behavior, it's hard to unmonitor them. So we do see the treatment effects carrying on to the same level, for, especially for the two out of the three behaviors, the fever load and for efficient flight. It seems to, to carry on. But we don't see the, the great treatment effects that we had in the targets and the pro-social group. We don't seem to have them in the fuel load and the efficient flight behavior. Actually, they are, after the experiment, they converge to the control group, the monitoring group. So the, the act of like not sending these letters every month, telling them about the targets, telling them about the pro-social incentives, actually that mattered um, because without those letters, they actually converged back to the monitoring group. So that was actually a really interesting finding for us is, is that you, know, you do need to carry on doing these 
interventions to be able to change productivity over the long run. This isn't a, a one-shot deal on target setting or pro-social incentives. You have to maintain those targets and like how you do that over time and how you do it dynamically is an interesting research question in itself. We had static targets for eight months, um, but the act of monitoring, I think is quite powerful. Once you monitor your employees, it's really hard to unmonitor them from the perspective of the employees. I guess what you're referring to in terms of the dynamic effect of targets is that as with incentives, you could think of some type of ratchet effect such that if I mean my target is month, I know that there's going to be a more stringent target in the future. So that kind of eliminates a little bit the bite of, of the initial target. That's what you were thinking about? Absolutely. I, th I think that's that's a more difficult problem to solve than what we had to right. solve, which is, can we just create a baseline target for these captains? Just going back to the big effect of monitoring, okay? because monitoring is one of the two interventions that seems to have a big initial impact, is the one that survives on the long run the most. I'm wondering again, what is the importance? What, why will monitoring matter if it is not linked to any actual consequence? Let me just go back to what I was mentioning earlier, that monitoring includes communication of values or objectives as well, which again, cannot be undone. Like once I told you that this matters to me, I cannot tell you that it didn't or that it stopped mattering to me. But if monitoring, these are highly unionized positions, jobs, presumably you cannot be promoted from being captain to being something else, admiral. So these are in some sense, I mean, highly paid, but dead-end jobs as well. So it, it's a little bit puzzling that monitoring without any consequence should be so important. Yeah, we, we could not unpack it to directly speak to those two mechanisms that you suggested. One, which is, you know, the monitoring itself versus this is what the company cares about. This is the, the three behaviors, or this is like a outcome variable, which is going to be fuel productivity. Now the company cares about this. I suspect that if it's more of the latter, we may get like these long-term persistent effects that we find, because now as a captain, you kind of know that the airline cares about this. And so, you know, as part of the tit for tat of, of a contract, you're kind of like doing it because the company wants you to do that. So I think there's a little bit of the ladder mechanism going on over time, I think. It's really hard for us to say that with a lot of confidence because we didn't have sort of two control groups where two control groups where we could say, this is what we care about, this is what we don't care about, but we're going to monitor you on it anyway. Right. So we couldn't really do that in this case, but we would love to be able to do that you know, in the future. So something that one has to worry about in every study of a new policy or an organization is that maybe the behavior that that policy is targeting improves, but this is at the expense of other behaviors that the policy is not focusing on. This is typically the case with incentives, quantity versus quality, but every setting in which there is some intervention, there is that risk. You do study what you call spillovers to other behaviors. What are these other behaviors and uh, what do you find? Yeah, so again, working with a company which has tremendous data is very helpful for us to, to be able to do an assessment of the impacts on other aspects of the productivity of the company. So we had delays so we could figure out, you know, if, if we are trying to make them more fuel efficient, does that come at the expense of getting out of the gate longer? So in, in the experiment, we actually do not find that delays increase. And actually in the monitoring group, delays decreased. So it may be the fact that once 
I this is our kind of hypothesis is that once the captain knows they're being monitored on these three behaviors, they might be being monitored on other things that the airline cares about. And the airline does care about you know, on-time departure. And so you can imagine that the captains in that group are now caring about other things. So, so we see it, a decrease in delays across all of the captains, um, but no additional benefits over like the information group and the target or the pro-social group over the monitoring. So that was, that was good because we thought, you know, there might be some sacrifices on some of the margins, but delays is good. Flight duration, we didn't see, we didn't see any any impact whatsoever on, on flight duration. So it wasn't like the airline captains are, you know, slowing down over the Atlantic to say farewell. Uh, they're probably doing other behaviors that we couldn't measure, like continuous ascent and continuous descent, which leads to, you know, lower fuel being used in comparison to a step uh, ascent or a step descent. So that was good. Uh, diversions on safety, we, you know, we, we did, never found any instance of uh, an aircraft getting low on fuel and need to divert to another another airfield uh, or another airport. I think for the 12 months before the experiment, there was no diversions because of fuel, lack of fuel, doing the experiment, the same thing as well. And I think that, that just shows how safe and how much planning goes into routes in the airline industry. This is like, they've done these routes a thousand times. They kind of know how much fuel they ought to be on this route to satisfy every safety measure being placed by policymakers. It's just the fact that airline captains have some discretion up and above that amount. So that's where we we get in the margin on the fuel use, but we don't find any impact on diversions. We also have job satisfaction, which again is an important variable uh, for thinking about uh, employee turnover and productivity over the longer run. And we do find that those in the pro-social group actually had a significantly larger job satisfaction than those in, especially in the, 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 the control group. So how do we do this? Well, actually at the end of the experiment, we ran a survey uh, where we had about just over 60% of the captains to take part in a five minute survey. We know that their opportunity cost of time is quite high. So we incentivize them a lot to take this survey. And one of the important questions was job size. So it seemed like, you know, if you do leverage this, these pro-social incentives, they may not affect productivity directly, but there may be some under indirect effects that we are, you know, working on that we don't see on the field. So, so that's, you know, it might be the fact that we get less turnover over time with the captains who have been given those pro-social incentive. And then in that survey, we asked for their, you know, their demand for this management practices over time. Do you want to carry on? And the overwhelming majority did want these management practices to carry on. Uh, about 80% wanted these things to carry on, which shows that, you know, this is definitely a, a, an employee set that's never been told they're doing something well at. There's a little bit of social recognition in, in our targets because we said, well done, you're a fuel efficient captain if you hit two out of the, at least two out of the three captains. These captains have never been given any social recognition <laughs> in their jobs before and it carries on today. Um, and so it, it might be the fact that these types of sort of non-price benefits in management practice actually lead to these captains wanting to turn up to work every day and are happy in their job and are demanding more of it over the future. So we were thinking that we would see some negative impact <laughs> of these management practices, but we don't really see any of the margins that we can measure anyway that do seem to be negatively impacted by the management practices. If the intervention was profitable, less fuel usage, captain's welfare improve or the job satisfaction improves. Obviously, less fuel usage decreases cost, but it's, it's great for the environment. CO2 emissions went down. This is obviously this rare example of the $20 bill that is lying in the pavement. 
what I'm wondering is how is it that you have a post-experiment period? Like halfway through the experiment, the company should have told you, everybody's happy with this. It just involves sending a monthly letter to the addresses of these captains. I was surprised that this intervention did not carry on forever up to, up to today and that you have a period in which the treatments disappear. We wanted to keep this going for eight months and have that sort of time period after to not give them any interventions so we can see the persistence. So that was that was constructed by our design and, and Virgin Atlantic were very happy with that. And so off the back of, you know, us writing the paper and taking our time and doing that in the economics <laughs> literature, you know, and the community that that takes some time. They wanted to, you know, for us to do the full analysis or start in something again. And so th they are interested in, in carrying this on. And off the back of the research, I co-founded a company called Signal that will hopefully try to do this in a less manual way. Right. So what happened during the experiment, we actually had ourselves, you know, Greer, John and myself, and also the, the fuel efficient conversion actually physically sending out these letters. And they didn't want to do right. that for <laughs> this experiment. They wanted to move and, you know, they wanted a way to this be automated. So now we've created a system to actually automate this. And we're going to do this moving forward with Virgin Atlantic. But I think what's really fascinating after talking to many airlines about this project and trying to convince them to run another field experiment so we can test more things, a lot of the major airlines where we have like a large enough sample that we want to experiment, they say, this is a great idea. We would love to do this. We, we probably will know it works, but we can't communicate with the airline captains. The internal labor relations between the unions and the management is just so bad that they cannot even instill a program like this. And so that's where sort of this, these internal labor relations are getting in the way of these companies being more productive. And so like I've pitched this idea to a few airlines, some of, you know, are, are starting to take it up now, but some of them and big household names are just like, we want to do this, but we can't. And that was... Have you pitched it, have you pitched it to any unions? So we try to, one of the European unions, we've got some support from now to do this because you can imagine there's different ways that you could have some share agreements that they get some benefit from right. the airlines for this because we saved a lot of fuel, right? Uh, we saved over six and a half million dollars of fuel in this experiment. And so you can imagine they can come up with some agreement or contract. Um, but I think the unions do have hesitancy in suggesting, well, this is a slippery slope to performance-related pay and to the fact that there'll be no union in the future. And so that's their concern. But I think when we show them the captains do want this, it leads to better job satisfaction and better for the environment. I think it starts to garnish more of their interest and attention. But it takes time because they got their own vested interests to care about and, and how that relates to the company. There has to be you know, academics like ourselves and trying to bring these players to the table. Uh, and that's, that's effortful. So you say $6 million. Uh, you have like this calculation where you compute the, the fuel save by interventions and all this. But over how many flights is this? So we have, in, in the eight-month period, we have uh, around about 34,000 flights. Right. So this is around like 180 pounds per flight or 190 pounds, something like this. Six million sounds like a lot, but 180 doesn't sound like so much. Like, these are transatlantic flights. 
180 is a, a third of commercial and seat price or, or something like that. So it's not a huge, huge amount of money per flight. Obviously, this because Virgin Atlantic is so big, it all adds up very quickly. But it's not an enormous amount. Of course, this is just because you happen to target these three performance measures. If you extended it to other performance measures, maybe there will be others where you will get a cumulative effect as well, no? Yeah, absolutely. So I think like this is our, our first go at trying to do this. I think you know, doing it again, I think we could get you know, even, even larger effects. I think this is just one airline as well. This is one airline where we are now work, you know, working with other airlines where we see these performance measures, these three behaviors not being done even to the same level as the baseline as Virgin Atlantic. So the room for growth is much larger um, in those companies as well. And I think that the, one of the main messages we want to get out of this is for like every ton of jet fuel that we save, we save 3.15 tons of CO2 entering the atmosphere. And so if you think about not just like the productivity, but the social marginal cost of this or the social marginal benefit, um, when we estimate the marginal abatement cost for this program, we get negative $250 per ton of suit. And so finding those $20 on the floor from an environmental point of view is, is challenging. And so this is one area where you could see that there could be some ways that other outside organizations, international aviation organizations, might want to facilitate companies and unions to take this up because it's not just good for the companies themselves. It's good for the environment, but they don't get the benefit of that. So we need to think about ways to, to coordinate that. So uh, in terms of thinking about other airlines, I was also wondering whether one might expect uh, similar effects in other airlines. So this study was uh, undertaken for Virgin Atlantic, which is an airline that mostly does transcontinental flights. So this obviously has a number of, of implications. For instance, maybe the time intervals that the pilots can play around with for on-time departure are wider than for low-budget airlines, right? So the fact that you don't find effects on delays might be slightly different for, say, Ryanair, which is already playing with such tight margins. Secondly, maybe the issue of excess fuel is more severe because the flights are much longer. There are not going to be airports in which to reload in the middle of the Atlantic. So maybe pilots were excessively conservative to start with. Although you are saying that these baseline measures are even worse for other, other airlines. So who knows? How do you think that this study will vary if it was performed on not other airlines, but other types of airlines? Yeah, and those, those are valid concerns. Uh, and it's concerns with you know any, any sort of insider econometrics that's been done. You always want to know, okay, does this apply to uh, another company, another airline, where those market factors might not be the same. And so we don't have this in the paper, but we've had like a lot of conversations with, with, with airlines who are doing more short haul and they are finding that they, they, they do want to do similar type of interventions with their captains because they do believe the captains are not optimized because they don't have a contract where they should be optimizing on fuel. And so they do want these, these management practices to come in because they do think that there's margins to work on. But there's, there's frictions between you know, the management and the unions that don't allow this. And I think every airline has captains who are part of a union. And so uh, even on short haul flights as well. So I do think the effects might be different for short haul, but the concern, the concerns of the management in short haul flights 
are very similar to the long haul flights. Now, whether the bang for the buck is different, yeah, we'll just wait and see. But I think if you think think about this from a social planner point of view, you do want to focus on sort of the, the long haul carriers or, or the or the the airlines who burn a lot more fuel. And let's say like you know Ryanair is not one of the leading contenders of burning fuel. There are there are many other airlines above them. So I think it's a valid valid concern that I think over time hopefully we'll start to see how important these practices are in other airlines, but also in other industries as well. And I think that's where some of my other research is going as well. So in in terms of thinking about the contribution from like an academic perspective, there is something that you haven't mentioned and that I wanted to to go back to. So if I look at the title, the impact of management practices on employee productivity, a field experiment with airline captains. So there are four things in there. Number one, management practices. Number two is not on firm performance, but instead on employee performance. Number three, it's a field experiment. So hopefully you are identifying causal effects. And number four, the study is on airline captains. There is a a number five, which is the stacking of the interventions that you also mentioned that that's important, but let's put that aside for the time being. My personal taste would be that number four is the most interesting one. That is the fact that the study is on airline captains. Management practices, since 2007, the, the paper that you referred to earlier, they have been studied in many different settings, in many different ways. So there are lots of studies of those. This study you mentioned is on employee performance, but of course, if this is on employee performance, then there is a big literature on management practices on employee performance because, say, performance pay incentive schemes are also a management practice. And we have lots of studies on those or or information that is provided to workers is also a management practice, right? So obviously the fact that these are causal effects is important. You mentioned there are a couple of studies on those, but we need more studies. But for me, the fact that this is on airline captains is particularly valuable because many studies, most of the studies that we have are on jobs that are not perhaps the jobs of the future. Okay, so we have really interesting papers, groundbreaking papers that study how to install windshields faster or how to pick more fruit or pass more items uh, for supermarket cashiers or answer phones better in a call center and sell more. These are obviously jobs in which it is very easy to measure employee productivity. And this is the reason that they have uh, been used for, for great papers, but not the type of jobs that are going to drive innovation, creativity, growth in the future. Whereas here you have, as, as you mentioned, highly skilled, motivated individuals and so on. And studying this type of people is also important in itself. I, I completely agree. And, and that was you know, how we tried to, to frame the paper, which is, as you were saying, we don't have enough good evidence that these practices do matter for high-skilled labor who are already motivated to do a good job and who will be productive and are creative. And so you can imagine a case of the state of the world and it's linking to other studies being done previously, where as you start to ratchet up the management practices, as you start to control these workers, these high-skilled workers more, it might backfire. 
So thinking about the hidden cost of control by Falcon Colstead in the AER, you've got Ellenson and Johannesson in the AER paper suggesting that these high-skilled labors, uh, high-skilled employees are mission-driven and incentives might dry, drive out that mission. You can imagine as we start to ramp up these practices and make them more intense for high-skilled labor, it might backfire. We right. have no good evidence on whether that's the case or not. And so hopefully this paper is, is the first contribution to that. But we do see in, you know, the force ranking schemes by Jack Welsh and General Electric in the 1980s and 90s comes in and it gets abandoned because a lot of the tech employees don't like to be stack ranked. And you've got like this trend in the tech industry now where you can work anywhere in the world under the, under the pandemic, but also before the pandemic. And you're not monitored every day. As long as you deliver on outputs every quarter or every I don't know, year, you're, 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 you're given your incentives, you're given your pay, and you're left to be productive because you're highly creative and you're mission-driven. And I think if we sort of draw that back in and start to ramp up the practices, I don't know how how that will impact on productivity. So we might see a more desire of high-skilled labor to be not given these management practices over time, or especially the, the intensity of them. Um, but we shall we shall wait and see. That's not an open-ended question. I, I, I completely agree with you that this is an, a, an angle of the paper that we think is pretty cool, that, that we do have people earning $200,000 a year in a highly optimized industry already just the unions kind of maybe get in the way of that optimization in, the, in this instance. But I do think, you know, we were surprised to even see any impact because these are highly productive, high ability individuals who are in a, I would say, an equivalent to a tech industry. Like they're, they're given information and data every second of the day. And so to be able to understand how to improve that, I think is pretty, pretty important. Thank you, Robert, for coming to the program. Jordi, thank you so much for having me. Great talking to you. My guest today has been Robert Metcalf. My name is Jordi Vanesivital and this is The Visible Hand Podcast. Please visit our website, thevisiblehand.uk, for links to the other papers that we discussed. Introductory music selected by Aitana Blanesiso. This episode was produced by Anderson Tan. <laughs>